It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's deputy editor. Oliver Letwin has been at the heart of conservative politics for most of his adult life. From working in Margaret Thatcher's Downing Street Policy Unit to serving as one of David Cameron's most trusted ministers, he's played an important part in shaping the modern Conservative Party. He's also just published Hearts and Minds, a memoir in which he does more than just rattle off a series of anecdotes from a life in politics. Instead, he uses the book to make the case for the liberal, pro-market variety of conservatism that he believes is both the recipe for electoral success and makes for good government. For this week's episode of Free Exchange, I met Sir Oliver in his parliamentary office, where we discussed his book, his wide-ranging career, the roots of Tory modernisation, and why he is intensely relaxed about the Brexit negotiations. Can we, can we start by talking about um, Keith Joseph? Yep. Um, he's, he was your first sort of real boss in politics. Yep. And uh, something of a hero of yours, is that, would that be a fair Yes, I think that's a fair description. I mean, he was... Um, He's an immensely engaging and uh, remarkable man with, like all the rest of us, uh, many flaws which were amongst his most engaging characteristics. But uh, I think in the end he was both very deep uh, and very serious in the sense of uh, focusing his attention on what he thought would be best for the people of our country. Um, And he really... Uh, he taught me that politics isn't isn't ultimately about you know um, parties and um, uh, manoeuvring and uh, you know who gets what job and who's up and who's down and you know, all those sorts of things and tribal loyalties and whatnot. But rather, it's about a discussion between different ideas and trying to work out which ideas are likely to produce the policies that are most likely to um, bring advantage to you know, humanity as a whole and our fraction of humanity in particular. And that's a that's actually somehow in the end much more important than all the other things you might learn from someone when you're setting out in politics. Yes, and you, um, I think in the book you describe it as a, he saw politics as a search for truth. And truth is something that is a word that crops up quite a lot in the book, um, which struck me as actually quite an unusual thing for a politician to sort of see his job as having something to do with. I mean, in, in terms of the popular idea of politicians, the truth would be something that would be um, something that troublesome journalists would present to them and they'd have to come up with an answer to. Um, so where do you think you get this, this idea of 
sort of tr- searching for the truth being a sort of politician's job. Well, and the first thing I should say incidentally is something about journalism, which is that with some rare exceptions, I think actually interest in the truth in the sense of the real truth uh, is something that's almost deserted our media. Actually, unpopular as a statement will be in many sections of the Conservative Party, the, the BBC is in most respects sort of more interested in and answerable to the truth than most of the rest of the media. Uh, and in fact, the other broadcasters compared to the newspapers. I think the newspapers are the main uh, villains here. But actually, the story is what dominates, even for the broadcasters, and much more so for the newspapers, the story is what dominates rather than the truth. And so this sort of uh, charade of exposing the truth actually is really about generating the story. Mm-hmm. But what gets in the way of the truth for politicians is something different. It's not the story and the need to sell papers or get audiences. It's uh, tribalism. It's being swept up in the argument. And I, I'm a believer in democracy. I don't think it's just sort of the least worst system. I think it's actually a good system. But I think it's only a good system if it's conducted in a way that means that people of opposing views are doing so in the spirit of acknowledging the truth as they see it. Now they're going to take different views of many things and the truth is not a thing that's seen by all people in the same way, obviously. That's the point of the debate, just as there's a point in debates between people of differing views about science. You know, that's how science makes progress. Politics in a democracy makes progress if people take differing views, but only if they're actually willing to admit the strength of their opponents' arguments where they see it. If if people engage in democratic debate on the basis of just assuming that if the opponent says it, it's false and therefore can be ignored, we don't get anywhere. We just produce populism and not a serious liberal democracy. So I think, I think truth is absolutely at the centre of these things. And, and actually, as I say, most of the time when they're not engaged in you know, theatre-like prime minister's questions but are engaged in serious discussion, politicians are interested in that and do recognise the force of each other's views. And that's why politicians cross the floor and why politicians actually recognise the merits of people on other sides of the House of Commons or any other legislature and so on in a way that, that many people find surprising. Um, so, so do you worry then that in 2017 we're getting further away from this ideal you, rep, you sort of present, that things are sort of calcifying? And I don't think that politics is getting further away from it, no. I think, as I say, the media has diverged from it a lot. There, there, there is a strain of politics always around that denies all that and that is just engaged in populist demagoguery. And I think you see that in some of the far right, far left politics around the place. Uh, uh, The whole point about fanatics is that they don't engage with the arguments of their opponents because they just regard their opponents as evil and that's the end of the matter. (laughs) And then then the sort of conservative equivalent of that over the last, throughout your career really, you, you, you talk very critically and interestingly, I thought, about this concept of soundness and how... In Margaret Thatcher's years, it was being one of us, and later it was, is, is X or Y politician sound on a given subject? And these ideas kind of inhibit uh, free, uh, free conversation that you... Yes, I think that's right. I think, I think tribalism has many aspects, but 
one aspect is is the sort of uh, peer group that, uh, that creates an atmosphere in which you're you are one of us, you are not, you are sound, you mm-hmm. are not. Whereas in fact, every democratic political party is bound to be uh, is is rightly a coalition of people of differing views on many subjects who, for one reason or another, have more in common than they have with other potential groupings. But uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to feel identically about everything. And uh, what what benefits a party and benefits a government and benefits a country is if people continue to explore those differences and work out where each of them has something to say. Of course, there are people around in the world who are either lunatic or stupid or malign, but there aren't very many people who are Mm. either lunatic or stupid or malign. Most people in any domain, and certainly most people in politics, are intelligent and benevolent and uh, sane. And so it's to be expected that from their varying different points of view, they will have something to say. There'll be some some part of the truth that they're seeing. And so they need to be taken into the conversation and not uh, dismissed on the grounds that they're not one of us. Let's go back to um, to your time working for Margaret Thatcher. You worked in uh, the policy unit in Downing Street. And you were unusually well prepared in many ways because some of the great thinkers that influenced Thatcherism were people who you had known as a as a child when you were growing up. Maybe, yeah, yes. maybe tell us about yes, that no, a little I, bit. I, I tried to bring that out in the book, people like Hayek and Popper and Oakeshott and uh, Friedman and Banfield and uh, others were uh, in and out. Uh, that was very exciting uh, intellectually, but also sort of helped me later to understand the background to what became Thatcherism. You actually say you actually also say in the book that you felt physically sick with excitement when you first opened uh, the Open Society. So, I, it, so politics is very much an ideas first thing for you, rather than yes, uh, yes, it is. Anybody who's ever had the uh, experience of of uh, reading anything, I, I mentioned some other books that had the same sort of effect on me in other um, domains. But I mean, I, I, I anybody's had the experience of reading something that's a really uh, exciting. Uh, book knows that uh, uh, like with a great piece of music um, or uh, an extraordinarily beautiful painting or building or sunset over Sunion or um, uh, a love affair there are various things in human life that can enlarge uh, the spirit and uh, that are unforgettable and formative and for me certainly that does not consist of the uh, sort of day-to-day business of sort of uh, you know numbers of votes accumulated on particular bills or uh, um, what the Times newspaper is calling today's story or something of that sort. It consists of the the ideas that lie underneath politics and that illuminate politics and that in the end determine the fates of nations and continents and of humanity. And and what was it about? About Popper in particular that you found uh, so exciting. Oh, it's just, it's just. I mean, incidentally, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm not by any means an undiluted admirer of Popper's, as, as will become evident from the book. But mm. I, uh, there are other philosophers that I uh, treasure much more highly than him. But, uh, but what's exciting about it is, is the is the the, the extraordinary clarity with which he uh, reveals the difference between uh, liberalism and a series of very enticing uh, theories um, from Plato to Marx, which are about closed societies, as he calls it. And I think it is, in the end, that the triumph of Western liberal democracy is, above all, a triumph of an open society. 
And that was, uh, at least you argue in the book, the success of Thatcherism was its ability to take these ideas and marry them with a, a very pragmatic and practical approach to to government and an emphasis on ultimately policies that actually worked yes. rather than a, any commitment to a abstract ideology. So why do you think it has this reputation for being very much ideologically driven rather than... Well, to be driven by an idea or a series of coherent ideas is very different from thinking that you thereby obtain some uh, blueprint which uh, you should uh, think you can improve humanity by imposing and just working to in ignorance of the facts and the histories and the complexities of uh, human society. Uh, one of the points about uh, conservatism is that it acknowledges that uh, things aren't like that. There aren't uh, rationalist blueprints that give you simple answers that you just sort of turn on by flicking switches. W what I think made the period that uh, Mrs. Thatcher was uh, Prime Minister so remarkable was that it, it was driving in a certain direction governed by a conception of, of, an, of an idea, an aim, to liberate the energies of the nation by liberating people to um, do what Michael Gove rather beautifully describes as writing their own life stories more. But it did that in a very down-to-earth, practical, pragmatic way. And it, as you say, it it tried to find solutions that actually worked. Uh, and that, of course, the test of... of the idea in the end is not, is it a nice idea, but does it produce a better life for humanity? I, and I would strongly argue that history shows that in the end, free markets informed by social justice produce a better life for humanity than any other system of government. But you do, um, and this is a theme throughout the book, you admit that there was a blind spot really um, for Thatcherism and for the people working for Mrs. Thatcher, which is whether these ideas necessarily worked for those at the very bottom of yes of the and heap. that's where i think keith came in that uh, the reason that keith is in a way the sort of presiding hero of the uh, first half of this book is that he he was trying to get the rest of us to recognize what the rest of us didn't sufficiently recognize which is that the informed by social justice bit of the free markets informed by social justice is just as important as the free market bit of it both matter equally and uh we didn't we, we we knew that social justice mattered but we didn't pay as much attention to it in those days i think as we needed to or as keith wanted us to uh i i i, I in in the book i also tried to bring out that there was another thing we didn't pay sufficient attention to although mrs thatcher herself did pay enough attention to it but in the period just after mrs thatcher uh, the the Conservative Party, including those who thought themselves as Thatcherites, didn't pay enough attention to it, and that was the uh, the other side to this, which is not just social justice but the environment. Because what we what we need for humanity is the prosperity that enables you to uh, live well and to fund good public services and so on. The social justice that allows the people who are at the bottom of the heap, whom the market is not properly serving, to be looked after properly by the rest of society and a concern of the whole with the environment we live in so that we live not just in a rich uh, and uh, just society but in a beautiful world. 
And, and why do you think it was that you missed, so many of you missed that point about the social justice side of it? Well, uh, what I try and explain in the book is I, I think it was a, it was a combination of things, um, partly because of the battles that were having to be fought against a rather Neolithic uh, socialism that uh, had impoverished Britain dramatically um, and uh, had made life worse for almost everyone. And it's sort of difficult to fight that battle on behalf of the free market while sufficiently emphasizing the point that many of the socialists actually were making, which is a true point, that you also needed to concern yourself with those who uh, were least well off. Uh, but partly also, I think, uh, uh, what we were talking about a, a, a little while back, the, the sort of sense of um, them and us, of, of being one of us, of soundness and so on, got in the way. The people were afraid, not, not Keith, certainly, not some others, but mainly people were afraid to... Uh, dwell too much on social justice in case they were accused of uh, not sufficiently signing on to the free market agenda. Whereas I see the two, in fact, uh, and I think Keith saw them as two sides of the same coin and, and, and that we should have recognized more than we did. And it's funny because I think even now people reading um, you make, making that point might be surprised to then hear the next point being that um, – it was Keith Joseph that did realise this, in that in the kind of uh, memory of Thatcherism, your argument would be seen to be sort of a, a point in favour of the, the so-called wets and the other side of the Conservative Party. Yes, Whereas actually, uh, you know, jo Joseph was a sort of Thatcherite before Thatcher was. That, that's true. Um, but of course, in this, he was on the side of the wets. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the problem about the wets was that they, they didn't... Uh, uh, at the beginning, sufficiently acknowledged the importance of the free market side of the equation. Um, uh, they came to, actually. Um, uh, and we as a Conservative Party, of course, came to recognise the social justice side of the uh, question. So I, uh, this, is, this book is also an optimistic book in the sense that it suggests that, that um, the party as a whole gradually came to understand this balance in the right kind of way. Well, and, and later in the book you describe... Um the time after the 97 election and, and you're, you're by then an MP and you have this blank document on your computer screen. Uh, I think, I think it just says at the top, what is the present purpose of the conservative party? And you find yourself staring at this document for quite some time before you know how to, how to fill it out. Yes. Um, years. Mm. And what was it that sort of made you realize what the party was for? I mean, well, I, I, I can't say that I realized it. I think, um, the party gradually realized it and I, I saw it happening and came to 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 see how some people were were right about it. I think the problem in '97 was acute because Tony Blair had essentially uh, bought into the entire Thatcherite um, uh, thesis so far as the management of the economy was concerned, and he kept on doing things which uh, actually we all agreed with, and and so that leads you to the question: Well. Why do you need a Conservative Party if the <laughs> Labour Party is being run by somebody who's doing things Conservatives agree with? Gradually, of course, the Blair government started doing some things we didn't agree with. That, uh, that created one kind of purpose. Uh, for example, they started spending too much money that the nation didn't have, whereas Mrs. Thatcher had gone around the country in 1979 endlessly saying you can't spend money you haven't got. So the, the, the Labour Party, under, uh, really under Gordon Brown rather than Tony Blair, sort of lost sight of that. Uh, but 
the other thing that happened was that the Conservative Party rediscovered uh, social justice and the environment as crucial components of the package, so to speak, and and that had a lot to do with uh, Ian Duncan Smith and uh, and his recognition of social justice and uh, the moves that we then made uh, at the, in the transition between him and Michael Howard and in the transition between Michael Howard and. Uh, David Cameron and in David Cameron's leadership to recognise the fundamental role of the environment too. Um, so these things corrected themselves. It isn't that I suddenly had an, aspira- an inspiration. It's that the party as a whole moved in a certain and very constructive direction. The um, social justice side of things, I think, is common cause among the party, um, parliamentary Conservative Party. The environmental side of things has become a very contentious... Um, uh, climate change in particular has become a very contentious issue um you describe your work making a conservative case for action on it are you surprised in the way that debate goes on in 2017 i mean would you have been surprised well i think first of all you have to distinguish between different things Uh, i think actually there's a very very strong and generalized support in the conservative party uh, right across the parliamentary party and the voluntary party and so on in favour of concern with the environment. Actually, whether it's forests or the blue belt, the preservation of the seas and the biodiversity in them or uh, the efforts to preserve uh, tigers and uh, the like in, uh, uh, against uh, uh, extinction or um, the need to beautify our cities and preserve the beauty of our rural landscape or the importance of our built heritage or the necessity for clean air. or I could go on and on mm-hmm. about things actually that the Conservative Party, not only the Conservative Party, of course, by any means, but the Conservative Party as a whole signs on to a big environmental gender with hardly any debate whatsoever. Of course, there may be debates about specific elements of, of it or means to achieve it, but the broad thrust is unified. The one area where it's been contentious is this question of Uh, the extent of anthropogenic uh, climate change and the degree to which, therefore, A, the world as a whole, and B, the UK, should have its uh, energy policy uh, orientated towards reducing carbon emissions. This is a very highly technical issue. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt at all in the minds of any Conservative uh, Member of Parliament or any Conservative activist that if it is true that the world as a whole is going to be adversely affected by climate change. And if it is true that, as I believe it is, that uh, uh, anthropogenic climate change poses a risk to the world, therefore, that we should take some steps to avoid the risk. I think the main issue actually has been about whether the UK alone can significantly alter that, whether we should accept the costs of uh, uh, switch to lower forms of lower carbon uh, uh, forms of, uh, of energy production when the UK's contribution to the problem is so small by comparison with the rest of the world. But actually, but there is also come a long way on that. There is also a dividing line between you and some of your colleagues about you know whether it's something that is worth taking any action on whatsoever. Isn't well, there? I think very, very few actually. I. I I, I, I don't think there are very many uh, people in the Conservative Party at all who would argue that it's not worth having an insurance policy against at least the possibility that anthropogenic climate change will cause significant difficulties. Uh, I think most, most of the issue has actually been about the degree of certainty attached to those projections. And I, incidentally, I don't 
feel any certainty about them. They're scientific projections. When, when, since when has one ever had certainty about scientific projections? The problem is that there's a risk. And I think most people would agree that there is a risk. So the next question is, does Britain, by taking certain steps in the Climate Change Act, of which I was a strong supporter and one of the originators, does Britain, by uh, remorselessly reducing the carbon content of its energy systems, for example, and its transport systems, does it actually make a difference? Or are we just imposing on ourselves a set of costs which uh, other countries can avoid? I think the reason we come a long way on this is that actually the world has moved on a lot and other countries too are taking uh, these steps. So it's becoming less contentious, I think. But the other thing that's happened is that the economics have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I've always suspected would be the case, actually the technologies which produce lower carbon forms of energy and transport are actually beginning to be uh, economically superior. I don't think there is this great tension between our economic advantage mm. and our environmental uh, concerns. There are costs involved, but there are also benefits. And therefore, I think, actually, progressively, this argument is disappearing and we're coming to a consensus, which is a good thing. Uh, to take something I think your colleagues, on a, on a completely different subject, your colleagues would all, all, all agree on, uh, which is uh, privatisation, one of the big... Um, landmark policies of the Thatcher years and something which I think you then consulted other governments on uh, implementing. What was that like? Was that, as, as an as a, from your point of view, was that... Well, uh, advising on uh, privatizations uh, around the world was a very, very interesting um, phase of my life. Um, uh, from my point of view, of course, principally of interest because of seeing how other countries work and how their bureaucracies and their politics work. A fascinating and really instructive uh, period for me I, I do believe that, that we did also do some considerable good. I mean, I think the discovery that it was possible to achieve the goals that people had in mind when they nationalized things around the world, instead by uh, regulating things properly, so that to the maximum possible extent, quality was driven up and prices driven down by competition, and where that wasn't possible that prices were driven down and quality driven up by regulatory intervention, that discovery that you could, the government could act as a promoter of competition and uh, as, a, as a regulator and therefore didn't need to be an owner, and the discovery that if government wasn't an owner, private sector capital and private sector market disciplines could produce better results than on the whole, on average, isn't universal truth, but on average, than over a long haul um, nationalized industries were capable of producing, was, I think, a discovery of great value to the world. And, uh, and I certainly found myself in a very interesting time advising governments like the Cuban government, which is not yes. natural. That was uh, one of the candidates. most surprising sentences in the yes. book. That you... uh, and I, it wasn't just them either. I mean, there were, there were large numbers of of, of socialist states, which uh, uh, privatized very considerable amount. It's a very interesting and important observation that, that the 19th Congress of the uh, Communist Party of China has recently been held, and it, 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 the uh, President Xi's uh, uh, banner uh, uh, was uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Well, it turns out that socialism with Chinese characteristics involves probably the most vibrant uh, free market uh, uh, that there is in the world. That is a long way from things which happened in the past. And I think um, the, the bringing of hundreds of millions of people in China from uh, poverty into prosperity by a series of much more enlightened Chinese um, regimes uh, has been a huge success story for humanity. 
and when we when we look at these um that that success story or as you say the this evident success of privatization here and in other countries why do you think it is that when you come back to the attitudes of british voters today these ideas aren't that the market is not seen particularly favorably and that privatization is something that as many people sort of regret as 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 i thankful for and well i think uh, what happens is that people come to take for granted things which exist or forget or don't read the history enough to know what went before and what effects it had and uh, i suppose that's entirely natural but in the end the the sad paradox of um, nationalization in britain is that it, it didn't achieve the noble aims that its proponents had for it they, they wanted the best they wanted good quality at low prices to provide electricity and transport and housing and many other things for uh, for the people these are admirable aims it didn't work and uh, i just hope that people don't have to experience that all over again to learn all over again um, that actually it isn't the best way of organizing things is it a surprise to you though that these things are these battles you were part of winning in the 80s are being refought now or do you think that's no, just the nature I of things i think it's the nature of things that these issues go on being debated because the truth is that that, that they're complex and there are deficiencies of course there are deficiencies with uh, markets and uh, there are deficiencies uh, even more deficiencies with uh, private uh, monopolies and it's difficult to regulate and to achieve really effective regulation of private monopolies and it's difficult to maintain sobriety and proper behavior in open markets and people see these difficulties and of course it's also the case that it's easy to uh, see the unattractive side of people becoming very uh, wealthy uh, and then you know, not paying as much tax as they're due to pay or something of that sort and and it's very understandable that people feel very strong resentments about this both the intrinsic difficulty of operating an economy and the natural resentments of people about bad behavior continually recreate the circumstances under which somebody will for populist reasons argue that the answers are simple and that if we just nationalized everything and uh, uh, taxed everybody to the hilt uh, all would be well uh, mm -hmm. uh, we have to remake the argument because the basis for the argument is always there but i think if we make the argument properly we can persuade people because there is a truth here and the truth is that actually for all its imperfections a free market economy informed by social justice does better by the people as a whole uh, including those at the bottom of the heap and those in the middle as well as those at the top uh, than other systems have Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That system that you, that you say is the one that works the best. I mean, you, have, you sort of finally arrived in government in 2010, um, and you were working with some liberal Democrats who, in the book, you're very um, you, you're very generous in the things you say about them, and and you actually say that you had more in common with some of them than lots of your than you had with lots of your conservative colleagues. Um, so so that was your sort of chance to put these ideas into practice. Um, and what do you when you look back on that now? What do you see as the big achievements of that the coalition? Well, I think that that coalition government did a remarkably good job. Um, I think it took the nation through a very, very difficult patch in its history. I think the effects of the 2008 crash were much more profound than was recognized at the time. Uh, I think we're still learning how profound and long-dated those effects are, not just in the UK, but in the Western world as a whole. Uh, and uh, because of the excessive expenditures of uh, uh, Gordon Brown and his colleagues leading up to 2008, uh, the nation was ill-prepared to deal with that uh, financial and fiscal shock. And uh, we, we, we were very badly placed economically at that time. And the coalition government, uh, under George Osborne's chancellorship, uh, uh, steered a, a, a path through many minefields. So a lot of people said that the path he chose was going to lead to disaster. It didn't. It led to success. Uh, the deficit was brought back to uh, tolerable proportions uh, without creating uh, any significant growth in unemployment. In fact, uh, through uh, most of the later years with uh, sharply rising employment, partly because of changes in welfare policy which went with it. Uh, and uh, in addition to rescuing the fiscal position and keeping up employment and reducing unemployment, uh, that government uh, introduced uh, strong elements of uh, the beginnings of a successful industrial strategy, for example, the automotive strategy. It introduced a massive boost to training in this country with the revivification of the apprenticeship system. It dramatically improved our schools. Uh, it had a much less successful start on health and social care, but I think it gradually came to understand what was needed by way of integration of health and social care and began that work. And, uh, and in the coalition government, you're given this job of basically, for a long period of it, that's incredibly wide-ranging, and one minute you're, um, you know, a big part of it is, is sort of keeping the Lib Dems on side of lots of different things. But in terms of the policy areas you're dealing with, it's an incredibly broad set of things. I mean, how did you, how did you find that? I mean, was that something... Well, it was endlessly fascinating. I was very, very lucky to be able to sort of write my own job spec. 
it was a project that I was very fully committed to, uh, and I was working with uh, with David Cameron and George Osborne, um, uh, who were close political allies and and friends, uh, and with Liberal Democrats who who uh, uh, proved to be congenial partners. Uh, so it was entirely doable. Um, uh, it was only when I stopped uh, doing it uh, in 2016, uh, uh, not by choice, but by being removed, uh, that I suddenly realized how immensely strenuous it had been uh, and what an intense relief it was to be uh, freed of the cares of office. But you're, but you're going to be busy again soon. You've got your planning um, review that you're in charge of for the Chancellor. Um, well, that will be less strenuous, do you think? Than oh, uh, um, all the things that I'm doing now um, uh, are entirely different order of magnitude of um, uh, um, strain. Uh, no, uh, people people often don't realise how strenuous ministerial life is these days, and I think um, uh, mine was particularly so because uh, I was kind of the minister for negotiation and minister for crisis. Mm-hmm. And there was always some negotiation or some crisis going on, and ones to come. So it was really from very early in the morning till very late at night, seven days a week, and including wandering around. Um, you're floods, getting stressed floods just, on Christmas uh, Day. Yes, no, as, I, as I think about it, I, <laughs> I, I recall the extraordinary and intense pressure. But I mean, what keeps you going, of course, is just it's a great privilege to do it. It's, if you're interested in politics and in um, making ideas come into reality in, 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 in government, it is completely fascinating. Um, uh, so the adrenaline and the interest and the, the sort of passion for it um, make it tremendous fun. Um, I don't mean in any way to suggest that I didn't enjoy it while I was doing it. I did hugely. But uh, actually, as I say, nothing else you could do really uh, comes anywhere near to the level of strain um, of that. Do you think do you think that's a problem in terms of um, the quality of government we get? I, I think in Gordon Brown's new memoirs, he complains about how uh, you know, the sort of Victorian prime ministers had much more time to indulge various other interests they had and were, were markedly less stressed and overworked and um, their life wasn't so public as um, politicians today and so on. Oh, well, there is, of course, there's that side to it. Uh, um, and, of course, prime ministers have a whole... Different dimension, which makes it much more strenuous than anything I was doing. Being prime minister is vastly more strenuous than any ministerial post, uh, because you're also the centre of attention, mm. um, uh, and you are the representative of the country, and you're making uh, extraordinarily difficult decisions. You literally, as prime minister, you're never asked to make a decision unless it's completely unobvious what the answer is, because if it's obvious what the answer is, uh, somebody else will have made mm-hmm. the decision. Um, uh, so it's incredibly difficult to be Prime Minister. Um, and that certainly has changed over time in the sense that the amount of things that governments do and hence the amount of things that a Prime Minister is responsible for have vastly increased compared to the past. And that is, a, that is an issue. Of course, it's an enormous issue. I don't think for ministers who are engaged uh, sort of way below the level of the Prime Minister in uh, and, and all ministers are way below the level of the Prime Minister um, uh, in um, sort of the nuts and bolts of government and I was very much the nuts and bolts of, of, of government are much uh, more uh, strenuously engaged than they would ever have been 
you know, it is it getting the nuts and bolts right is is a jolly strenuous activity, um, and I think it's just bound to be that way. It's just it's a very very large machine, and you're trying to um, deal with a large number of problems at all times. And then and then the thing that brings the um the administration you're at the centre of to an end is obviously the referendum in 2016. Um, you open your book actually with um, yep. description of the, the, the European issue and you find yourself in an odd position because you wrote in 1987 a CPS pamphlet um, that at the time was seen to be sort of screechingly Eurosceptic and then in the inter- intervening years you sort of your views more or less stayed the same and everyone went from one side of you to the other on the European question. Why did you sort of say, stay so firm to that? Well, I... I mean, maybe perhaps just explain what you're... Your I sort think, of I mean, the point for me was that, that, that I, I uh, regarded and, and still regard the free trade side of the uh, EU, the, 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 the customs union, the, the, the single market... Uh, as hugely uh, attractive and advantageous. What I uh, regarded as uh, not attractive, not advantageous, was the uh, ambition of some within the many, uh, the prevailing tendency within the EU, to become more like a federal state uh, with uh, its own system of law, its own army, its own uh, armed forces, its own foreign policy, its own trade policy, its own uh, uh, currency, its own tax policy, and so on. I mean, the, these are the things that are formative of a state, and it mm-hmm. was clearly uh, gradually trying to become one. That I found unattractive. So for me, from an early stage, I mean, uh, relative to, 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 uh, uh, to British politics, an early stage, sort of, as you say, about 1987, so 30 years ago, The issue had always been, um, how do we continue to engage in the benefits of the uh, single market and the customs union without getting uh, dragged into this uh, European uh, super state? Uh, One part of that, of course, was not to be part of the euro. Um, Another part would have been, and this would have solved all the problems, actually, I think, not to have allowed the Maastricht Treaty and its successors in Amsterdam and Lisbon and so on to occur. Had we never lost the veto, it would never have been possible to create a European superstate. I, I, uh, that, that was where the wrong turning was taken. Uh, but even then, by staying out of the euro and uh, uh, um, maintaining um, some distance, therefore, from absorption into the currency which was the foundation stone of uh, also a centralised, uh, emerging centralised taxation uh, policy, uh, we stood, it seemed to me, some chance of achieving this status of being part of a sort of outer circle, while an inner circle gradually became more and more like a state. Um, and uh, I, uh, I kept on hoping that, that we could foster that um, arrangement. And I... I believed that, that, that the deal that we'd struck at the end of David Cameron's uh, time in office uh, did offer that prospect. Um, it wasn't overnight going to create the two, uh, the outer circle and the inner core, uh, but I think it would have led progressively to that um, answer. Um, and so I was very 
sad that it wasn't given a chance because we decided instead simply as a nation to leave altogether, which has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. But it was a very odd experience listening to the Leave and the Remain campaigns because I thought both were way off-beam. Um, I don't think anything like the universal bliss that some of the Leave campaigners thought was going to be engendered by leaving is going to be engendered by leaving, and I didn't think that anything like the doom and disaster that the some of the Remain campaigners asserted was going to be the result of Remain remaining, uh, sorry, the result of leaving was, was, was going to be generated by leaving it. And I, 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 you know, I think the truth is that it's, it's a rather balanced issue whether one should remain or not remain. Um, uh, while I think the nation probably made the wrong decision on that, I think now the thing is to sort of get on and do it and um, uh, make it as smooth as possible and end up therefore by being able to take advantage of the advantages without too many of the disadvantages. Given that you see it as fairly balanced issue and you know actually when you describe your thinking behind it one of the striking things to me is the difference in terms of whether whether someone with your broad view of the EU which I'd say is typical of your party um, it's only it, it hangs on a few small things basically I mean it hangs on whether the whether this two speed Europe was possible whether the negotiation was genuinely did offer that Given that it's, it comes down to these narrow things, are you surprised by the sort of nature of the debate since the referendum and, and quite how, again, there's been a sort of that one of us, one of them um, well, sort of I, approach to things? I think, I mean, it's always regrettable when people sort of get into camps and um, throw missiles. Uh, actually, within the parliamentary party, I don't think it has been like that. I'm very struck by the good humour and the mutual tolerance and the acceptance of uh, differences of opinion within the parliamentary party since the uh, uh, vote. Um, and as we've gone through the whole legislative process, for example, um, uh, so people have been trying to deal with the legislation in a very grown-up kind of way. And uh, some of us who were strong Brexiteers, some who were strong Remainers, some like me, sort of much more balanced in the middle, have joined forces to try to improve legislation and support it as it goes through. So I, my, my sense is actually that, 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 uh, that at the level of politics and politicians mainly, um, there hasn't been the sort of um, tribalism which, which uh, you're referring to. I think what's regrettable is that outside Parliament, um, there has been the stirring of these sorts of emotions uh, and um, uh, I think it will take some while for uh, quite a, a large, not probably a, uh, an enormous number, nevertheless quite a large number of people in our country to sort of uh, uh, reacquire an equilibrium. And are you, uh, uh, are you more, any more or less optimistic or pessimistic about our prospects outside of the EU today as you were when, you know, the, day, the morning of the, after the referendum? No, um, uh, I, because I never shared the euphoria uh, of the Leavers, nor the uh, uh, massive uh, despondency of the Remainers, uh, when I say the Leavers and the Remainers, I mean the more extreme variants of course, um, I'm not at all surprised that uh, my current view remains that uh, leaving will probably, on balance, be disadvantageous, but not hugely disadvantageous. And um, uh, it will certainly have some advantages. And I think uh, uh, things are sort of, as I would have expected, pretty, you know, pretty difficult to, to, to negotiate. 
Uh, I'm personally not very convinced that there will be a free trade agreement with the EU. Uh, I think this country is perfectly capable of uh, conducting its affairs without such a free trade agreement. It did for many years. I can't see any reason why it shouldn't uh, in, uh, in the future. Uh, uh, and I think actually that our main attention should now be devoted to getting the legislation in place and putting in place all the administrative arrangements that will be necessary if we don't have a free trade agreement so that it can operate relatively smoothly and so that um, also we maximize the chances of getting an acceptable free trade agreement because I think we'll only do that if we can show that actually we have a decent alternative which is to leave without such an agreement. And do you, um, is it moments like this that you regret that you're not there, you know, you describe yourself in the nuts and bolts of government and do you sort of think, do you sort of sit on the back bench thinking, I wish I were there. Oh, no, 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 uh, very much the opposite. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how lucky, personally, I feel not to be having to wrestle with these incredibly difficult things that now face the government. No, it's a, it's a, it's a delight to be able to um, uh, uh, think about these things calmly and uh, to talk about them in Parliament uh, legislatively and so on and leave the really hard work of negotiation and of preparation for leaving... Uh, to uh, to colleagues that uh, um, are doing noble work uh, with great difficulty. And um, moving on from Brexit, you, at the end of your book, you um, you sort of asked you, you consider the question of whether Brexit, the election of Donald Trump in America, populist movements in Europe, and so on, whether this. Um, you know how how without precedent and how significant historically uh, all of this is, uh, and you sort of come to the conclusion that this does, this is not this is not a reason to think that you've got to throw the kind of handbook out the window, and that really this is about the crash in many ways, and the the, the tail of the crash is much longer than we perhaps realised. Yes, absolutely, that is exactly what I think, uh, uh, and uh, I think the fact that people's real living standards. You know, will take a long time to um, rise above where they were in 2008, uh, not just in the UK but around the Western world, is a, is a very serious issue. Uh, it's serious enough for people that are, have above the median income, it's much more serious for people that are at or below the median income. Uh, and um, it's been tough. Uh, and of course um, that generates all sorts of reactions. Um, some of them have been um, far-right populist reactions, some far-left populist reactions. Uh, it differs in different countries, but it's the same phenomenon, essentially, in my view. And I think the right answer for uh, um, uh, those who believe in uh, uh, liberal democracy as a whole, and within that, in, uh, in free markets informed by social justice, is to hold our nerve and make the arguments. Uh, and I think, in the end, I'm optimistic that... Uh, People will uh, vote for parties that um, uh, actually offer uh, the real prospect of uh, um, a, a better society and a better economy, rather than um, parties that um, offer um, ostensibly um, uh, more radical solutions, uh, which are in fact not going to work. And, and why do you think the Conservatives didn't make a, the, the recent elect, the 2017 election? There wasn't this, that case was not made. Oh, don't let's talk about the 2017 general election. <laughs> I think the Conservative election campaign in the 2017 general election was, uh, was a, a total disaster. Uh, but we're not going to do that again. That, you only do that once. 
But 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 on the particular point of say um, the attitude to the market, I mean, there was the line about rejecting the libertarian right and the uh, and the left and so on. Um, do you think that's that was a tactical mistake, or do you think that that's genuinely sort of the, that's the I sort of mindset to, of the, the leadership? To, I prefer to think forward. I, I think in twenty two in in twenty twenty two when we come to fight the next general election, the party will want to do what the party needs to do, which is to make afresh the argument uh, for uh, uh, free markets uh, informed by social justice and by um, uh, concern for our environment and. Uh, it's going to need to. We're going to need to make the argument that that, that is the, that free market approach, as well as concerning itself with redistribution and the environment, actually can alone produce the prosperity that allows you to redistribute the money to those who need it most in society and to preserve uh, uh, excellent public services. And uh, by making those arguments, we take seriously and take on and can then, I think, defeat the uh, left-wing populism of the uh, Corbynites, uh, and maybe again uh, persuade the Labour Party or persuade people in the Labour Party uh, to go back to a much more rational and bare-right form of uh, Labour politics, which may in the long run incidentally be less good for conservative uh, electoral prospects, but much better for our country. Uh, one used to be able to say that it didn't terribly matter whether uh, Labour was in or the Conservatives were in, because whether it was Blair or Cameron, shall we say, you were going to get a government that was sane and broadly heading in the same direction with some changes of emphasis. Uh, and uh, we need to get back to that. That's what's in the interest of our country. And I think if we hold on there, we will get back to that. And I think in, in 2022, we will do that. One of the things that went wrong uh, before uh, and, and, and plagued us uh, in in seventeen was not taking Mr. Corbyn seriously and not making the argument. Um, we, we I think we learned that lesson and we'll we'll now make the argument. Oliver Lowen, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. 